welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist-oncologist, and I'm Associate Professor of Medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. Welcome to Season 2. This week on Plenary Session, you're in for a real treat. I'm back in the studio with some thoughts on a whole bunch of issues, and I'm joined via Skype by Dr. Sam Rubenstein. Dr. Rubenstein is the author of a new paper that appeared in JAMA Network Open. You won't want to miss this discussion, so stay tuned. But first, a thanks. I want to thank those of you who've gone online and support this podcast on Patreon.com. Patreon subscribers get access to the slides from lectures I give on Plenary Session. I also want to thank the hundreds of you who've gone to the iTunes store and reviewed this podcast. We appreciate that feedback. I also want to thank the dozens of you who've written reviews. A written review goes a long way. What can Plenary Session do for you? Email us your questions at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session. Let us know what you like about the podcast and let us know what you don't like. This year on season two, we're going to incorporate some new elements in the podcast and we want to know your feedback on them. First up this week on The Monologue, I want to issue a bit of a mea culpa. A tweet by Darren Dolly caught my eye. Quote, if you've ever used the term thought leader, quote unquote, unironically, please fire yourself into the sun. I speak for literally every other person that's never done this. Thank you. And that tweet actually struck a chord with me because I agree wholeheartedly with that tweet, that the phrase thought leader is a terrible phrase. And yet... I do recall that I believe I made that error when, when I gave a lecture um, that appeared as a bonus episode. It's the very last episode. I made that error. I believe I referred to some people on Twitter as thought leaders. I want to take this opportunity to clarify what I actually believe and, and uh, to issue a bit of a mea culpa because I misspoke. So here's how. One, why did I misspeak? Well, I was giving a live lecture uh, to a audience of medical students, and uh, truth be told, I don't script everything I say in a lecture. Some of it is a bit uh, extemporaneous speaking. And it is inevitable that when you speak extemporaneously, uh, you end up fumbling and saying some things that you might not want to say, uh, in part because you're speaking extemporaneously. You don't have notes, and you may not have thought through everything you wanted to say. Um, and that's what happened to me. I said something, and, and the reason I feel bad about it is it's actually not what I believe, and I want to kind of explain what I actually believe about thought leaders, because I do believe that the phrase thought leader can be used correctly, but I believe, like Darren believes, that it's almost always used in this terrible way, and you should fire yourself in your son if you use it that way. So what what did I say? I think I referred to a couple people on Twitter whom I follow as thought leaders. Um, what did I mean to say? So I guess I want to draw a distinction between key opinion leaders, thought leaders, um, whom uh, the community of physicians believes are key opinion and thought leaders. Um, they are typically people who are the first or last author in New England Journal papers, who publish uh, uh, prolifically, well, of course, whose medical writer guides them to the prolific publications, who often do heavy industry consulting, who kind of toe the party line and say things that uh, you hear all the time and people repeat mindlessly and blindly. So that's what people refer to as the thought leaders. And I agree with Darren uh, that I, I sh and you should show such people very little respect because often they're thought leaders simply by virtue of politics, of networking, connections, uh, and not truly because they are the ones who have issued the most provocative thoughts and the most provocative guidance. Um, so if you use the term thought leader to refer to those people unironically, not mocking them, of course, um, you should fire yourself in the sun because they really don't deserve that level of praise. Um, 
And I fear I might have uh, at least given the impression I might have used it that way uh, in my in my speaking. Um, but forgive me, of course, that's extemporaneous speaking in the heat of the moment with no edits. Um, and plenary session, of course, these monologues are also extemporaneous. I very rarely have prepared notes. But uh, what I do have is the luxury of the delete button. Uh, Kiana Klossner, the producer of this podcast, goes through this episode and she uh, cleans up all my ramblings and mutterings and turns it into something vaguely coherent. And so we have to thank Kiana for that. Uh, she's the, the force behind plenary session. Um, so that is the luxury you get, of course, when you're recording in a studio. And by studio, I mean quite office. Um, but I want to come back to this thought leader. I do think there is, in fact, a quote-unquote thought leader, real thought leader. And what is a real thought leader? A real thought leader are the handful of voices who really do have original thoughts. It's not a high bar, but you have to have original thoughts. And there are people on Twitter who have original thoughts. Um, there are even people whom I disagree with often, but I respect that they have original thoughts. And I do put them in a thought leadership bucket, although they may be leading people in the wrong way, but they're in a thought leadership bucket. But there are a lot of people who have original thoughts who I do respect a great deal. And, uh, you know, one of the people who came to my mind in the heat of the moment was Venk Morthy, and I guess I would say I totally put him in that bucket. He's somebody who I respect a great deal. I respect his uh, rigor of thinking. Um, I also do probably agree with him 99% of the time. That doesn't hurt. Um, but, um, you know, maybe there's 1% of things that uh, maybe Venk Morthy and I see a little bit differently on, and that's okay. Uh, but I do want to acknowledge that when he does tackle an issue, um, he does it in a way that uh, not a lot of people are looking at in a very thoughtful way, uh, sometimes even with simulations and analytics to kind of back up his argument, um, sometimes very thoughtfully deconstructing an argument that appears in the popular press that uh, the quote-unquote thought leaders are uncritically parroting. Vink Murthy is going to come along and say, well, you know why that doesn't make sense or that's wrong? And so he's you know totally in that category. Um, the other person who I think is a true quote-unquote thought leader uh, is a Daryl Francis. Daryl Francis does not tolerate any foolishness. Uh, he is a very rigorous and clear thinker. And when Daryl Francis weighs in on an argument, I think the word thought leader applies. He's going to look at this issue in a very clear way. And his work on renal artery denervation, his work on the use of placebo and sham controls uh, for subjective symptoms, uh, his work on the ongoing study that's going to look at nocebo effects of statins, uh, they're all highly original uh, work. Um, Many of the people who I featured on this podcast, I think, are actually true um, leaders of thinking. Uh, Dr. Ellie Murray was a recent guest on this podcast. I think she is exceptionally talented at taking complex phenomenon and explaining it simply and uh, pushing forward the field in her own uh, interest on uh, causal inference. Uh, to be honest, some of which uh, her work is, frankly, above my pay grade. I, I don't even fully understand it. But the parts I do understand, uh, I can tell, is somebody doing really highly innovative work. Um, of course, uh, a classic person who I think has been a, a leader is uh, is John Ioannidis uh, at Stanford, who uh, has a number of publications, um, who has really kind of uh, taken a 30,000-foot view of science and thought about science in a, in a novel and highly innovative way. Um, and uh, even if you disagree with John, uh, you cannot discount the fact that he is bringing something to the conversation that isn't typically brought. So back to Darren's quote, if you use the term thought leader and ironically throw yourself into the sun, uh, I agree with him. And if I and if I did that in the course of my speech, ap I want apologies for that. Uh, I do think, however, there are truly people who think originally about topics um, whose opinion I deeply respect. 
Um, there are also people who toe the party line, uh, who are shills for the industry. Um, and those people who are shills are typically the ones labeled thought leader. Um, so if you use thought leader in that context, you're probably wrong to use it in that context. Um, but that doesn't mean there aren't truly people out there who are innovative, original thinkers, who are, quote, leaders of thought. And so that's the distinction I want to draw. And so I want to thank Darren for that tweet. So I want to thank Darren for that tweet, which I hope wasn't about my podcast, because it would be narcissistic to believe that he was listening to my podcast. He's probably not listening at all. Uh, but uh, it did jog my memory and made me think I said that. And I was like, yeah, he's right. Uh, and I should, I should be clear. So on that positive note, we'll turn to the next subject of discussion, the Nelson trial. Several months ago on Twitter, I saw a quote-unquote thought leader uh, talk about Nelson trial. This person is uh, a thought leader of the latter camp, and so I'm putting the air quotes around it. Uh, this person was kind of saying something along the lines of, um, you know, population statistics consistently show that among people eligible for lung cancer screening programs, uh, we have rates that go between 2 and 4%. We have very, very low population rates, even among the people who would be eligible for NLST um, or the broader group who might be eligible based on USPSTF guidance on lung cancer screening. Uh, why is it so low? Question mark, question mark. And I think that the narrative that goes on in the echo chambers of lung cancer, hashtag whatever lung cancer advocacy uh, hashtag they like to use, um, it, and I, I use the word echo chamber with meaning because uh, it truly is an echo chamber where people just say things that they all like to hear uh, and that they're really unwilling to hear uh, countering opinions, which is what I've encountered the several times I've actually kind of tried to answer their questions. Um, so the idea in the, in the, in the echo sphere is that well, uh, people who are heavy smokers have historically been marginalized. Some truth to that, no doubt. Um, and the reason we are slow to adopt lung cancer screening, where we weren't slow to adopt mammography or PSA screening, is that we simply don't care enough about people who are heavy smokers. That, I think, is a little bit in the bubble. I think that's actually incorrect. I think what they don't realize is that it's actually not really about lung cancer screening, per se. Any screening in 2020 would have an uphill battle over a screening in, say, 1970. And that's because of mammography and PSA. See, they don't, they don't see the history the right way. It's because we adopted mammography based on low credibility data, and it's because we adopted PSA based on really no credible data, and it's because only decades later we learned about the massive problems of false positives, overdiagnosis, rampant inflation and incident statistics without countervailing reduction in metastatic incidents, population statistics that just don't fit with an effective screening program. And it's because the perception by women and men who undergo these screening is that the benefits of the screening strategy are far greater uh, than what we, we know to be true, that even the most optimistic estimates in meta-analytic techniques are an order of magnitude smaller benefits than what people believe in survey after survey. So it's because there's this mismatch between public perception and truth, because we have rampant problems with these screening tests, that in response to that, we have erected higher standards before we adopt new screening tests. And... Unfortunately or fortunately, I actually view it as a fortunately, lung cancer screening is being pursued in the era of better standards. And so we have better standards today. So, of course, we're not going to adopt things based on less evidence than we used to. And that's not because of stigmatizing people who are smokers. That's the echo chamber idea. It's because we learned the painful lessons that if you debut a screening test before you know what you're actually doing, you are very, very likely to do serious harm to lots and lots of people. So that's the truth. And yet in the echo chamber, uh, they lament the poor uptake. And then they ask the question, why? 
And they want to hear this answer that, of course, it's because uh, we stigmatizing lung cancer. We're stigmatizing people who are smokers, which it, there might be other ways in which we do uh, exert that stigma. One of ways is which lower COPD funding compared to other diseases based on burden of disease. Sure. Um, but that's not the case here. The case here is because we've learned the painful lessons. And it ain't that good. CT screening for lung cancer has serious problems with the methodologic evidence, okay? That's the other reason why the adoption has been poor. The evidence base has been problematic. And when I told them that, I went into the bubble one day and I pierced the bubble and I said, look, you guys keep asking why no one's adopting this. I don't know if I'm the one to break it to you, but one, you have a lot of false positives. Two, you have a lot of unnecessary workups. Three, you have serious complications that are probably not even fully reported in LST. And in Nelson, the new study out, not reported at all. You have all these problems. You don't improve all-cause mortality. The finding in NLST is based on an imbalance in non-lung cancer death that's likely due to chance alone and it's not statistically rigorous. And in Nelson, as we're going to talk about, there's nothing going on there in the all-cause mortality department. So you're really subjecting people who are heavy smokers to a battery of invasive tests and being put on the medicalization pipeline, and you don't know for sure you're improving longevity or quality of life, and that's why there's incredible reluctance. And if you pair that with the fact that this is a patient population that may not want to subject themselves to tests with uncertainty, they may want more certainty and proof of benefit and bigger magnitudes of benefit before they subject themselves to this gauntlet of testing. You couple those things together with the fact we've learned the painful lessons of screening from the 1970s and 80s with mammography and PSA. You take all these factors and put them together and you get the end result that, yeah, it's going to be slow uptake and there's going to be a lot of pushback and questions raised for good reason. Okay. And it's not about stigmatizing anybody. It could be, it doesn't have to be lung cancer screening. It could have been pancreas cancer screening and it would have faced an uphill battle in 2020. Transvaginal ultrasound and CA125 faced an uphill battle. And that's not because there's any stigma against ovarian cancer. Okay. It is an uphill battle these days because we've learned painful lessons. That's the reason. So I told them all this, and uh, of course they got mad at me. They got mad at me, and I see that some of them even regretfully, uh, as testament to their, um, I think, poor character and, and poor taste, uh, they say that, uh, that I'm anti-screening, or that uh, even one, uh, I think, went so far to say that I, I, don't, want, I don't want what's best for smokers. Uh, God, that is uh, factually incorrect. Uh, that is totally incorrect. I want what's best for uh, people who have heavy smoking history. I care about them deeply. In fact, I've had loved ones who've had heavy smoking history, too. I care about them deeply. Uh, if you doubt that I care, uh, you should go straight to hell because you're a horrible human being. Uh, what you don't realize is this is not an issue of who cares more. We both care. The difference is I'm bringing my care, pairing it with my ability to critically appraise articles, to ask the fair question of are we really making these people better off by subjecting them to this battery of testing? That's the key question. And that is the backdrop for the Nelson trial. We both agree we want what's best for people. The only difference is some of us know how to read articles critically and others of us don't. That's the difference, okay? And if you don't know how to read articles critically and you think you're making the world a better place, the road to hell has been paved with people who think they're making the world a better place who don't know how to appraise evidence critically. That's the road to hell. Uh, and, and that's the category they're falling in. They are acting as if they're doing what's best for people at risk for lung cancer, but they're not looking at the totality of the evidence. And as such, they're doing them a grave disservice. And so if anything, it's their ignorance and arrogance that prevent them from seeing the truth. And so that they are the greatest threat, I think, to lung cancer patients. It's not about intentions. Everyone's intentions here are good. Some of us are using our noggin and others of us are not. And that is the premise for Nelson. So let's talk about Nelson trial. Okay, the Nelson trial. 
a mere 491 days after presented at conference and touted online in trade publications and by hashtag lung cancer experts, the Nelson trial is at last published. See, some of us like to read the published clinical trial, particularly for complex interventions like cancer screening. Others of us are quite content with touting the praises based on shreds and snapshots of evidence that are carefully selected by presenters in abstracts, or what I call medicine by press release. And there's no shortage of lung cancer experts who were happy to say for many, many months that we had enough information to know that screening for lung cancer uh, was supported by the Nelson trial. Indeed, there are many things to note in the Nelson trial. But first, let me just point out, this is a randomized control trial of CT screening for lung cancer in patients with the risk factors for lung cancer, such as an elevated smoking history, um, versus usual care, which is no intervention. In that respect, it's different than the NLST study, which was a randomized control trial of CT screening versus a non-standard, not appropriate control arm of chest radiography. So that was the NLST. The NLST, of course, found a roughly 20% reduction in lung cancer mortality and a roughly and statistically significant 6.7% reduction in all-cause mortality. It was the first and only cancer screening trial, to my knowledge, that showed an improvement in all-cause mortality, which, to be honest, is what patients really care about. Patients care about two things. And actually here, even calling it patients is inappropriate. These are, these are healthy people. These are people without complaints, asymptomatic people walking around at risk of a condition who do not yet have that condition. And if you take somebody who's asymptomatic and merely at risk of a disease, and you promise that by doing X, you're going to make them better off, I think what you really have to aim for is improved all-cause mortality, because that's what you promised them, that you're going to make them better off, improve their life, um, or improve their global health-related quality of life. Of course, for a number of logistic reasons, it is impossible and has never been done studying cumulative global health-related quality of life in these studies. And thus, we're left with all-cause mortality. We're left with disease-specific mortality, which is death from the thing you're screening for. Uh, that's a problematic endpoint, of course, because assigning the reason someone died is not a perfect science, and people will disagree about that, as we see in the Nelson trial, as we're going to talk about. So all-cause mortality really is the benchmark for whether or not you ought to do something routinely to a healthy person. And in the NLST, we saw that signal. We saw a 6.7% relative risk reduction all-cause mortality, but there was a kicker. The reduction in lung cancer-specific death was not big enough to drive the all-cause mortality reduction. It was part of it, but it also relied on a not statistically significant imbalance in non-lung cancer death that favored the screening arm over the chest radiography arm and inappropriate control arm. If one were to imagine that that imbalance in non-lung cancer death weren't there, it went away, then the trial would no longer be statistically significant for all-cause mortality. It would have failed to show an all-cause mortality benefit. What does that all mean? Well, in the BMJ a few years ago, we argued that what it means is that that all-cause mortality benefit in NLST certainly is not explained solely by the reduction in lung cancer death and is a little bit uncertain. It's a little bit tenuous. And in the years that have followed, I have eagerly awaited updates to all-cause mortality. And if anyone knows of them, please email them to me at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com because to my knowledge, I have not yet seen an update from that original NLST publication for all-cause mortality. Meanwhile, they're more than happy to update the lung cancer-related death. So I think if you're going to update one, you better update both. So many of us believe that NLST was uh, one study 
It was one study after many studies had failed to show lung cancer screening could improve outcomes. Um, it had an inappropriate control arm that really didn't reflect standard of care. And if anything, would dilute or mask harms because your control arm are going to be followed and receive interventions that they would not otherwise receive with true standard of care of doing nothing. And so we waited for a confirmatory study uh, to really provide clarity here. And at last, the Nelson trial has been published. 491 days after they said that screening saved lives, they published those results exactly what they mean. And there are many interesting things in this article. So first, you can cut to the table, the last line. If you subject a person with a smoking history to lung cancer screening versus not, do you improve their survival? And the number of mortality and the death rate is roughly 13.93 deaths per 1,000 person years, or roughly 13.93% in the period of follow-up, which is roughly about a decade, versus 13.76% in the control arm, uh, which is not statistically significant, a hazard ratio of 1.01 with a confidence interval that goes from 0.92 to 1.11. So a numerical increase in death that's not statistically significant, but really kind of overlapping survival curves, really a total wash. And I think that's the real take-home message of the Nelson trial, that we did something to patients for many, many years who had a not insignificant risk of death. They had a 13.5% point risk of death over a decade, roughly, which is a serious risk of death, and we were unable to budget at all. It is, looks absolutely unchanged. If you comply with this screening program, your risk of being dead or alive at 10 years is more or less the same, and no one can tell those two risks apart. All right, well, how about a reduction in death from any cancer? See, death from any cancer, that requires some adjudication, but not as much adjudication as death from lung cancer. So for instance, if you have a patient who died of an adenocarcinoma and you're not exactly sure where the source of the adenocarcinoma is, um, you might be able to say, well, they died of a cancer, but was it a lung adenocarcinoma? Was it a pancreas adenocarcinoma? Is it a really just poorly differentiated adenocarcinoma? Can we appeal to CK7, CK20, TTF? You know, these are the kinds of things we do, but you know, there's always these gray areas in medicine. If you had scanned the person, did they have a mass in the lung or did they have a mass in the pancreas? Was the pancreas mass bigger? Where was the primary? What if you didn't have bi a needle biopsy? You just see a lot of cancer and you don't know the source. Uh, what are you going by? How do you know it's a lung cancer death or not? What if they didn't have an autopsy? So death from lung cancer requires even additional uh, information to adjudicate and make the call than just death from cancer, which still requires some judgment, but perhaps less judgment. So let's look at death from any cancer, which is an important outcome. Well, it turned out that happened to 7.26% of people on the screening arm and 7.5% of people on the control arm, a difference about a quarter percentage point, which is not statistically significant. Okay, so there's no reduction in all-cause mortality. That hazard ratio is just flat one. Looks like there's no signal there. There is no significant reduction in all cancer death. Uh, now let's come to lung cancer death, which is the primary endpoint of this study. It's, of course, not what's most important to patients. It's not what people really care about. They don't care why they're dying. They want to do something that will reduce the risk of death. But on the issue of lung cancer death, the percent of people who die in the control arm is 3.176. And the percent of people who die of lung cancer in the intervention arm is 2.430. And that's a percent difference of 0.75, or three quarters of 1%. And that, my friend, is a p-value less than 0.05. It's statistically significant. So on that basis... Pop the champagne. The Nelson trial is positive. We are saving lives. 
And by saving lives, we mean we're reducing by three quarters of 1% your risk of lung cancer death. In a backdrop of 13% risk of death over the course of a decade, which is absolutely unchanged. So, lives saved. You'd be crazy not to do it. Well, of course, unless you cared about dying for any reason, cared about global quality of life, and if you were curious about what are the percent of people who suffer harms or complications or needle biopsies or VATs uh, or follow-up CT scans, uh, you will be disappointed because this paper does a lousy job of documenting all those downstream complications. In fact, it doesn't really report that. It really only reports whether or not the person had a positive screening test result which was just 2% of people, but there was a whole chunk of people, a double-digit teens percent of people, who had an inconclusive result. Of course, in the NLST study, 20% of people had a positive screen result on the CT screening arm, and that's likely only because both trials have different definitions of what counts as a positive screening result. So, um, I think it's important to say that putting a label on why someone dies is not a perfect science. Uh, even in this study, Nelson, there's only an 86.1% concordance rate between death certificates and an expert panel in adjudicating death. 86.1% uh, is good, but it ain't 100%. There is still discrepancy. And that's another reason why death from lung cancer is problematic. I turned to Twitter and I put it this way. I said, imagine telling a healthy person who's undergoing screening, look, I have a screening test for you. If you get this test done, you have a 13% risk of death over a 10-year horizon. And if you don't do it, you have about a 13% risk of death over a 10-year horizon. And that risk is indistinguishable. But your risk of dying of lung cancer goes from 3.2 to 2.4%, which may or may not be offset by harms and deaths. We don't know that for sure, but one can hope it isn't. So, you want to do the CT screening? I think if you pose it that way, if that's the shared decision-making process, I think that's going to be very, very different than if you mislead, hype, and say, this is something that's been proven to save lives. Um, and I see proponents of CT screening for lung cancer point out that the 0.74% difference in death from lung cancer is numerically larger um, than some of the disease-specific differences we do accept, such as mammography. Um, and what I want to say is that, um, you know, simply because we have had a low bar in the past to debut a screening test and simply because we've come to regret that over three decades, um, doesn't mean that you should uh, aspire uh, to have the bar lowered for you. You should aspire for more. And if you cannot take people who have a 13% risk of death and do something to them to lower that death rate substantively, um, maybe you ought to leave them alone. That's the real question. If you're doing something to lower it three quarters of 1%, which you know you can't and you haven't powered your study to detect, you haven't proven that that's not offset by harms and off-cause death, um, maybe you really ought to back off and, and, and do further studies. In fact, even doing the power calculation as to how big this trial would need to be to significantly reduce the risk of all-cause death should give you humility uh, give you the wherewithal to realize that what you have proposed is a very, very, at best, modest, modest reduction in the risk of death. And a lot of people may reasonably not want to be plugged into the healthcare system and be medicalized uh, just in your quest to provide them with the three quarters of 1% uh, improvement in death uh, and a 13% backdrop, which, by the way, you haven't yet proven is statistically significant, is not offset by off-target death. So I think when you look at it from this lens, uh, the Nelson trial just shows us how low the bar is for cancer screening. 
And uh, I think that's sad and unfortunate. And anyone who really wants what's best for people who have a heavy smoking history would want to raise the bar. If you want what's best for these people, and I want that, you need to lower 13% risk of death to 12%, 11%, 10%, 9%. You have something that can lower to 10% risk of death, now you're talking. That's a 3% absolute risk reduction over a decade. To be honest, maybe the thing that'll do that is a statin. You know, that might be a more promising strategy. Uh, but the thing that's not going to do that is a CT screening test for lung cancer. Uh, the Nelson trial is a very sobering trial. I think it's a trial that should give us a lot of pause. Uh, and we haven't even gotten into all the protocol amendments because, to be honest with you, I haven't even had a chance to work through this appendix, the protocol amendment, the statistical analysis plan, which is only registered four or five or six years after the onset of trial enrollment, the change in the PI. There's a nice article that appeared in a, in a Dutch journal about these problems or these questions that still remain. Uh, I'm putting all that aside. I'm saying let's just take it face value what they found. If you take it at face value, uh, it's, it's almost a non-starter. I, I don't know how you can tell someone in, in good conscience that I have something that you're going to subject yourself to, um, and I have no idea if it's going to reduce your risk of dying for any reason over the course of the next decade. Uh, I do know you're going to be called back for subsequent scans and get scares and get needle biopsies, um, but I have no idea if you'll be better off on the whole as a result of that. And I think that's a tough proposition and a tough sell. So I think lung cancer screening, uh, the proponents of this need to um, wake up. They need to realize that you need to measure all-cause mortality. And in fact, this is the best setting to do so. I mean, we're talking about of the, of the risk of death, you know, one in four deaths are from lung cancer. And so if you can't put a substantive dent in that as enough to drive your all-cause mortality uh, benefit, um, then screening has an uphill battle in every other setting because this is the setting where, if anything, one cause of cancer death is the largest fraction you're ever going to get. You're not going to get this for, say, pancreas cancer, colon cancer, or breast cancer. Um, but, um, but, but that said, actually, even the good folks with uh, colonoscopy and Flexig in pool meta-analysis, they have finally gotten there. They've gotten to an all-cause mortality benefit in pooled meta-analysis uh, through flexible sigmoidoscopy. But the Nelson trial, if anything, will diminute any perceived all-cause mortality benefits that we're seeing with NLST. It's, it's, getting, it's getting closer to the null now. And, and I think the NLST is really kind of a non-starter. You have a control arm that's not what anyone's doing. It's, it's not a useful study. So CT screening for lung cancer, I think, is a hypothesis that has yet to be proven. Um, there are proponents out there who believe they're doing what's best for patients. Um, I think they should be cautious about that. Um, they should go back and review the history of medicine, review off-target death, review adjudication of death, read the paper by Joaquin Chapa that we talked about in an earlier episode that we published in the Mayo Clinic Proceedings about how death is adjudicated, um, and really ask themselves, uh, if you are somebody sitting in that room and somebody says, if you get this test, you got a 13% risk of death, and if you don't, you got a 13% risk of death, and that risk is indistinguishable, but your risk of lung cancer death goes from 32 to 2.4%, which may or may not be offset by harms and off-target deaths. They need to have that honest conversation in the room before they undergo CT screening. All right, I'm back in plenary session HQ, joined via Skype by Dr. Sam Rubenstein. Dr. Rubenstein is a third-year hematology oncology fellow at the Vanderbilt University Medical Center. He did his internal medicine training in Vanderbilt, and he is originally, like me, from the Chicago area. He did his undergraduate at Northwestern University and his medical school at UIC. Um, and uh, I'm delighted to have him here on the podcast to discuss a new paper out in JAMA Network Open entitled, 
indication of measures of uncertainty for statistical significance in abstracts of published oncology trials, a systematic review and meta-analysis. So we're going to get into what this means, what are measures of uncertainty, and why this matters at these p-value cutoffs. So uh, Sam, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. And thanks so much for having me, Vinay. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure to have you on. And I guess I should also give a shout out to the senior author of this paper, Jeremy Werner, who is a fantastic oncologist and informatician. Uh, is that the right word, informatician? Yeah, I think informatician, maybe a slight pronunciation difference, but that is that is the correct word, yeah. How do you how do you pronounce it? Informatician. Infor- informatician. Informatician. You and, probably got it right. That's I don't know, and I put it I put an emphasis on a different syllable. So okay. <laughs> All right, good. Okay, so so you both share this interest in oncology and informatics. Maybe before we jump in your paper, why don't you tell the audience what exactly is informatics and why should any and why should they also, you know, be interested in it? Yeah, so it's a good question because um, it is a bit of a nebulous field. Um, so informatics basically refers to the interface between how information is collected and uh, ultimately interpreted by end users of uh, people. And it's a multidisciplinary field that touches computer science, knowledge management, and sort of reference management, uh, which is the domain in which hemonc.org resides. Um, There's also bioinformatics, which uh, deals with how information uh, pertaining to genomics and proteomics is expressed and ultimately interpreted. Um, And then there's clinical informatics that deals with large data sets that are derived from the electronic health record and Mm. and other registry sources. So it's a very very broad discipline, but I guess at its core, it uh, sort of consists of uh, people who care about categorizing, classifying, storing, retrieving, and thinking about information. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's a fair that's a fair summary. I would say. Yeah, I think it's pretty cool because I think you know uh, people who do what you do are often really good at uh, at uh, working with computers and and applying computers to sort of answer um, important questions. And in this case, you did do that to a degree. You uh, applied uh, sort of computer based uh, techniques to answer a question sort of about publication methods. Um, so why don't you jump in and tell us a little bit about. Um, you know, what was the question you sought to answer in this paper? And then how did you build the data set? Yeah, so that's a, that's a, that's a good question. So um, I started working with Jeremy uh, my third year of residency. And around that time, uh, Jeremy deputy edits hemonc.org, which is a large uh, decentralized knowledge base of chemotherapy regimens. Uh, and maybe perhaps due to his presence, used pretty ubiquitously at our institution. Um, but uh, is pretty widely used in the medical oncology community. Um, At the time I joined his group, uh, the website was in the process of being labeled for efficacy. Um, And one of the ways that the website indexes each trial for efficacy is by the degree of statistical significance of the ultimate result. Um, And it's basically broken down into a few categories uh, based on the p-value and the cutoffs for p-value uh, were taken from a, a review article by uh, Pocock and others uh, that went through the uh, degree to which different p-values correlate with the inherent uncertainty of a result. Mm. Um, so we indexed a trial as uh, might have superiority if the p-value is between 0.05 and 0.1. 
uh, seeming to have superiority, the p-values between 0.01 and 0.05, mm-hmm. and uh, having superiority if it's below 0.01. I see. Um, I do want to. I do want to give the caveat that you know these are uh, there is a meaningful uh, decrease in the reproducibility of the result as you go from having superiority to seeming to have superiority to might have superiority, which Pocock and Ware demonstrate in the article that inspired this uh, indexing. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but in the absence of a, um, a sort of more consensus or formal way to break down uh, statistical significance, we thought this was as good as just about anything that's out there. I see. Um, and, yeah, that's a good point. So what I mean, what it's really getting at this, is this principle that, you know, is increasingly popular today which is that this dichotomous cutoff, a rigid 0.05 cutoff, doesn't make sense. There's got to be a gradient here. And at one end of the gradient are like really stringent findings that probably are not due to chance alone, although, you know, it's a very unlikely to have occurred if the null were true. That's really what the p-value is telling you. Um, right. And at the other end are things that are, you know, fairly likely to have occurred if the null is true. And in the main, in the middle, there's sort of a gradient. And what you're saying is, let's not dichotomize it. Let's treat it as a gradient. Um, uh, but let's see how people talk about the gradient. Exactly. So, um, yeah, uh, you know, in the process of performing this efficacy labeling, you know, we noticed that a lot of articles that were right on the fringe were making very bold claims about the reproducibility of the results and how likely it would be that we would expect those results to translate into meaningful clinical benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, as we were in the process of going through this, we thought, let's attempt to collect some data and see if, uh, see just how many of these marginal results mm-hmm. uh, were expressed with uncertainty in the abstract and the manuscript. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's what started you off. So to build your data set, you went to hemonk.org, uh, mm-hmm. and you downloaded every randomized control trial, which is like several thousand trials. Yep, it's about 6,000. And we're then you, you applied some filters to it. So take us through those filters. Uh, we wanted to restrict ourselves to the um, results that we categorized as marginal. Mm-hmm. So those are, again... Um, Articles that have results for the primary endpoint that have p-values between 0.01 and 0.1. So in the themes to have and might have categories uh, of statistical significance on hemonc.org. Um, we restricted ourselves to uh, randomized phase three studies. Um, uh, we initially designed an algorithm that uh, looked at phase two studies as well. Um, but those are by definition more hypothesis generating studies and we, we saw that they expressed uncertainty quite a bit more than the phase threes and didn't think it was fair to put those in the same basket. So we, we focused only on phase threes. Um, and we also didn't include multi-arm trials uh, simply because they very frequently don't comment, don't comment on the a particular result that is marginal. Um, so uh, idea was to find every marginal phase three that we could on hemonc.org. I see. Um, and... Um... And did you use computer algorithms to sort these out, or did you do it yeah. by hand? I see. The first step, uh, th- this step, uh, hemonc.org is, is, uh, has an internal um, knowledge management system. It's called an ontology. That um, It's a, like an internal relational database that stores features of all the articles, uh, including the regimens that are studied, what they, what they were compared to, um, features regarding uh, the journal that the article was studied in, and of course the statistical significance labeling that I mentioned. I um, we also used uh, the 
uh, internal relational database to extract some of the covariates that we correlated uh-huh. with uncertainty expression. So hemonc.org indexes um, uh, the for in, one example of that is that hemonc.org indexes. Uh, the year of FDA approval of all the drugs. And so uh, one thing we wanted to assess was whether or not a study of a drug that was not yet FDA approved would be more or less likely to assess uncertainty. Well, that's um, interesting. So, uh, we can go through some of those when we start uh, talking about the methods a little bit more. But um, several of the covariates were programmatically derived as well. That's interesting. That's great. So, but And did the people who put the trials into hemonc.org put it in as sort of discrete um, uh, data? Do they put it in as like single field entries? Like- That's a good question. So it's um, it's not, uh, it's semi-structured. I don't know if you've ever ed- edited a wiki before, yeah. um, but there's sort of a, a quasi-coded background that uh, the editors, and, and I, I should disclose, I also page edit the AL amyloidosis and smoldering myeloma pages I see. Uh, on hemonc.org. Uh, Another controversial area. I know, uh, right? Where right, you give, where yeah. you give lenalidomide to all your patients now, huh? Uh, uh, not doing that yet. Yeah, um, me neither. So, uh, <laughs> we discussed uh, on this podcast prior episode. Yeah, yeah and yeah. it was that was uh, unrelated to this, but uh, that was an excellent discussion. I thought, and I agree with the vast majority of what you said. Um, anyway, so uh, it's a it's a wiki um, type interface, and. Uh, on the back end, that ends up resulting in uh, structured data that can be stored into the ontology. Mm, I see. Okay. Yeah. So so that's where we are. That's how we get to the trials. And so you end up with something like uh, over 500 trials that meet your criteria, that they have this sort of marginal p-value, um, mm-hmm. that uh, they aren't glowingly positive, they aren't stone-cold negative. Um, yeah. There's something in between. Uh, they aren't multi-armed. They're just a single comparator arm, some of which are industry-sponsored, some of which are cooperative group studies. Um, mm-hmm. And they are also span decades. I mean, some of them have come out many, many years ago. Yep. I believe the earliest um, is 1974. Okay. Um, so the other thing I'll say is yeah. that another kind of obvious inclusion criteria, and this we did have to determine manually, was if the abstract actually addressed the marginal result. Uh, some studies have a marginal primary endpoint and, um, you know, the trial we found was an update or something else that does not actually address the marginal result. And since we were interested in how the marginal result was expressed, those had to be excluded. I see. So, um... What was the language that you considered as conveying or expressing uncertainty? What counted as as being adequately, um, you know, circumspect in your in your in your writing? That's a that's a very good question, and um, you know, we wanted to design uh, criteria that were uh, relatively straightforward and reproducible, and also rational with respect to um, the way that we think a marginal result really should be expressed. Mm-hmm. So. So we were focused on whether a marginal abstract um, essentially um, expressed uncertainty based on three factors. Mm -hmm. Uh, The first was whether the reporting was restricted to the conditions of the trial. Mm -hmm. So uh, we didn't want, uh, you know, we thought that uh, a a result uh, that's marginal, uh, that the authors should not make claims that that result is generalizable to another study. Um, that uh, that could be conducted under the same conditions. Mm-hmm. So um, an example of this that was relatively common is 
um, authors stating that a treatment was superior in the past tense, uh, we felt that to be expressing uncertainty, whereas making uh, a claim that a treatment is superior, um, you know, implies that uh, that result will be generalizable to another study, which is not necessarily true. So uh, reporting being constricted to the conditions of the trial is our first sort of factor. Uh, the second is whether speculative language was used. So, um, you know, if an article was to make a uh, speculative claim about how treatments might compare outside of the parameters of the trial, um, speculative language such as, you know, one treatment might be superior to another, um, mm -hmm. it's possible that treatment A is superior to another. Uh, those were statements that expressed uncertainty uh, in that they were using speculative language. I see. And the third, uh, and this was uh, important to us, is we didn't want the abstract to conflate statistical significance and clinical significance. Mm, good point. So anytime the word statistical was used, um, uh, we, uh, we felt it should be qualified as statistical. Um, so, uh, it, when we were sort of doing the early iterations of this, we noticed that that was, as one might expect, an extremely common reason that an abstract would score low uh, on uncertainty. So initially it was a binary algorithm and uh, we, we ultimately made it a three-tiered algorithm where um, if an abstract met the first two criteria, so using speculative language and um, making it clear that the um, conclusions only apply to the trial conditions, um, but did not qualify that a result was statistically significant, it got an intermediate score. I see. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, that's, uh, I think that's a pretty fair way to look at it. So let's jump in. There's so many results worth talking about. So let's jump yeah. in. What did you, yeah. what were your main results? And then we can kind of go through, go from there. Yeah. So I think the first finding and the, the most, uh, I think, important finding is that um, incomplete uncertainty expression is extremely uncommon in the oncology literature, which uh, sort of fit with our early empirical observation. Um, so only 31% of the trials uh, expressed full uncertainty as categorized by our algorithm. 40% um, uh, uh, or 220 of the trials did not express any uncertainty uh, according to our algorithm. And 161 ended up in that intermediate category where uh, you know, the only issue was that they did not qualify significance as statistical. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it, un, incomplete uncertainty expression is very uncommon. I think that's the first take home finding. Mm -hmm. Uh, we also were interested in what features of the article, the journal, um, the authors or, and the results, uh, correlated with uncertainty expression. And we, uh, abstracted, uh, 13 pieces of metadata about each trial. Yeah. And the ones that ended up correlating with uncertainty expression, I, I think there's some interesting positive results and some interesting negative results. Mm -hmm. So we found four trial features that, um, correlated with uncertainty expression. Um, the first was year of publication. Mm -hmm. So articles published in more recent years are likelier to express uncertainty than older articles. Nice. Uh, so the oncology community is getting better at, um, uh, expressing marginal results over time. Mm -hmm. um, another result that we found is that the lower the p-value got, um, and this was within of note, uh, both the uh, within the seems to have category and the might have category. Mm -hmm. So not a stepwise drop off in uncertainty expression right at 0.05. Yeah. Um, so uh, we found a linear, essentially decrease in uncertainty expression with decreasing p-value. I see, and I think that's um, worth pointing out, which is that. Even when you went from 0.051 to 0.049, yeah. 
that yeah. uh, the uncertainty didn't change uh, disproportionately at that stepwise cutoff. It's a linear relationship that people yeah. are more circumspect about 0.99, uh, 0.099 than they are about 0.012, uh, but there's nothing about 0.05 that's any special in your analysis. Yes, exactly. That's that's almost exactly right. Um, so, and tell us about number of uh, the authors. Other, What's the relationship uh, with authors? Yeah, yeah. So there is a trend towards. Um, uh, we did not find a statistically significant relationship with number of authors. That was another variable of interest. Um, we did actually see um, in univariate there was a trend towards better uncertainty expression with more number of authors, but. Uh, that is likely due to collinearity of number of authors with year of trial. Ah. So later trials, um, and, and in multivariate that did approach statistical significance as an independent factor. But, um, as anybody who does oncology research recognizes, um, the number of authors on some of these studies is increasing, uh, rapidly over time. So um, that, that's that funny you say that. I, I should have known that because a few years ago with my colleague Bapu Jen at Harvard Medical School and yeah. uh, Gauri Talak, a medical student, we wrote a paper called Authorship Inflation in Medical Publications, where we looked at papers across, you know, different classes in many decades. And we found, just as you note, massive author inflation. There's just more authors. And it's not explained, I don't think, by the amount of work it takes to do the studies because uh, no. we adjusted for a bunch of characteristics that would sort of get at that work question. Uh, it can only be explained by people putting their name on a paper who are not really doing that much work. I mean, I think that's the bottom line, but that's my opinion. That's yeah, just my yeah. Opinion. yeah, I think, I think that's, that's exactly right. I think another, um, another possibility is that uh, the trend towards, you know, as industry is obviously sponsoring the vast majority of, you know, today's yeah. trials, uh, a lot of these are decentralized and multi-center. And so uh, you'll have clinical trialists get authorship you know, if there's 150 patients and they put two uh, on, the rollers put four on, yeah, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That may be 30 people. And how do you, how do you boot some of them out? You know, that gets hard to do. Yeah. Um, in a fair way anyway. Yeah. So, well, um, there, they, are, they, there are they, some they, board yeah. justifications, but you're, I think you're right. The amount of work that actually goes into designing the study and writing the manuscript for a lot of those people is, is possibly minimal. Yeah, some people who believe that you should be an author of a trial for putting patients on the trial should read the ICMJE authorship criteria. But anyway, yeah. uh, and I'll I'll say Jeremy, you know, I'll give him a shout out. He is very stringent about ICMJE criteria being met for all the co-authors for everything that we do. So, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it's good. Good for him. Good and for him. For us. Yeah. yeah. Now tell me about the um uh the the journal tier. Did that seem yeah. to matter? And uh, tell me about whether or not it was drug company funded. Yeah, so I think the drug company funding is definitely our most interesting result, uh, negative result, that is. Um, so we bin journals by tier, um, and uh, this uh, essentially tier one, uh, tier two, and tier three, uh, we have a table in the supplement that indexes this. Um, basically, the, the tier one journals are Nature, Science, Lancet, JAMA, and New England Journal, um, then the tier two is a slightly bigger category that includes, uh, JCO, which if we were to look at, um, the articles by individual journal would easily have been the most common. And then tier three was, uh, sort of the rest of them. Um, we actually, uh, in a, in a different, uh, work that's not yet published, uh, obviously can't get into the details of that too much, but, um, these pretty much correlate with number of citations by factors of three. 
So tier two has three times as many median citations as three, and tier one, three times as many as two. So um, they were determined, you know, before we looked at that, but it, it turns out to be a pretty good surrogate for um, tier as, as per citations. Um, so uh, we did not find any relationship between tier of journal and, uh, you know, based on that categorization and uncertainty expression. So the biggest journals and the, the lowest impact journals are equally, um, I should say, unlikely to have abstracts that fully express uncertainty. I see. Yeah. And the, the finding with respect to pharmaceutical company sponsorship, I think, is the most interesting negative result. So uh, there's actually a pretty good sized body of literature that looks at the way industry sponsored results are conveyed. And there's obviously an incentive to hype up the results, you know, especially if there's an impending drug approval um, so that people, you know, will store the result of the trial in their mind as being definitively positive when it's not. Um but we actually did not find any relationship between industry sponsorship and uncertainty expression, mm. which was surprising to mm. us. Um, I mean, and when you think about it, it actually makes sense. Um, I mean, this is a post hoc justification and hard to prove, mm. but really everybody has an incentive to yeah, spin. Um, the yeah. publishing result to, to make it seem like it's a field changer, right? right? right. Not just industry, it's the rest of us. Right. And, you know, as we've seen in, um, in some recent examples, the, some of these cooperative group studies do take many, many years to complete, and mm-hmm. there may be an irrational exuberance in expressing the results, you know, as a result of that. So um, you're right. The question you know, isn't does does industry have an incentive to spin? That's not the question. The question is does anyone else not have an incentive to spin? And everyone has an incentive to spin. So what do you expect? There's going to be a lot of spin. Yeah, you've said it much better than I have. Yeah, that's exactly no, I right. Thank you. So everybody, everybody's got to spin. We yeah. all want to do it. So. So now let me give you my last question for this, which I think is a very important paper. What do you, um, I mean, what do you want people to take away from this? What should we do better? Um, and uh, yeah, what, what's what's the lesson here? Yeah, so um, here are the lessons. So um, the first thing is, it, it re- even though we're getting better at as an oncology community at expressing the uncertainty of a clinical trial result um, over time, there remains significant room for improvement. Uh, even for the last year of publication, which is 2018, um, as you can see in, in one of our in one of our figures, uh, it only is the case that about half of the trials fully express uncertainty. Right. Um, uh, the thing that um, in our minds is uh, offers the uh, best opportunity for improvement is the monomaniacal focus on the p-value alone as a metric of uncertainty. Okay. Um, the the p-value is not the only component of a result that conveys the uncertainty of that result. I agree. Um, very small effect sizes, um, even if statistically significant, oftentimes will wash out when a study is repeated. Mm-hmm. Um, so we looked at this in multivariate analysis for the subset of trials that gave us a point estimate of a hazard ratio and a 95% confidence interval. Mm-hmm. And for that subset, it was the p-value and not the effect size that drove uncertainty expression, or I should mm. say correlated with uncertainty expression. Mm. So um, I would I would just caution uh, authors of clinical trials to not only base their expression of uncertainty on the p-value, but also look at the point estimate of the effect size and the bounds of, of the confidence interval on uh, that point estimate for the effect size. All of these things should weigh into uh, expression of uncertainty. 
Um, so I, I think we're getting better uh, as a community, but there's still a long way to go before we're conveying to the end users of these results who are clinicians um, to, uh, to really understand the inherent uncertainty in these results so that we're not doing irreproducible things in our daily medical practice. Yeah, that's a great point. And I guess uh, I think that that's well put. Um, and the only thing that I think is um, maybe worth worth touching on is that um, you know if I if I remember that original paper by um, by Stuart Pocock and colleagues, it's been a while since I read it, but like they looked at um, reproducibility in sort of a um, statistical modeling way, uh, yes. like yeah, like statistically, if you reproduced it sort of new, like computationally, what's the likelihood you'll get the same p? Um, but it would be very interesting someday, um, you know, for us to kind of beef up our reproducibility and have empirical reproducibility estimates. And what that means is like rerunning a bunch of randomized control trials and seeing like yeah, yeah you know, because uh, uh, it might it, to see where exactly it shakes off. Is there is, is the p value actually capturing um, a reproducibility in an empirical way? I don't yeah. Know. So that's a great question. And actually, I think the very first paper we cite in our intro section is when the psychology community went through the same exercise yes. Yes. of trying to reproduce a lot of its um, its seminal findings, and the vast majority of them were irreproducible. Yes, the Brian um, Nozick paper in Science. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. So ours are probably a little more difficult logistically and ethically to reproduce that at that scale. Um, And I, I, I agree that would be a a valid exercise to understand, you know, what really are the best surrogates for a result being reproducible. Um, I I wish there were, um, I hope that um, I guess what I'll say is I, I'm not sure that there's enough of an appetite for that to actually get done. I really hope that there will be. Yeah. Um, I I agree with you that, like um, for 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 super um, uh, clear demonstrative things, we will never do it because of the ethical concern. But for some of these things that are on the cusp, toxic marginal drugs, modest benefits, you know, equivocal p values, um, you know, maybe that is the space you could say, like, look, let's just run another trial and loosen up some inclusion criteria so we kind of get some answers yeah. for real world people. But yeah, yeah, I think on your on your last uh, episode, if I remember correctly, you went into, or maybe it was a couple ago, you went into the difficulty of uh, these results to translate into the real world, which is mm-hmm. a related but different question. Yes, um, a related you do but wonder, different. Yeah. yeah, you do wonder how much of this would wash out when you just add the the wrinkle of loosening the inclusion criteria, so they slightly more closely resemble the real world population. Yeah. Well, Sam, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You're on the job market now, so I'm curious where you land. Uh, but I can already tell from this publication and from talking to you uh, that you're going to do great things in the field. So I look forward to following your career. Well, thank you so much, Vinay. And, and likewise, congratulations again on your uh, your recent uh, 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 gig. Uh, it's, a, it's a big deal and um, couldn't happen to a better person. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate you coming on. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to Season 2 of Plenary Session. I've been your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Review this podcast at the iTunes Store. Supporters of this podcast can back us on Patreon. Patreon allows you to support artists you like, and Patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on Plenary Session. Got questions for the show? Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or email us at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We love fielding listener questions. Thanks for listening.